You may be seated. We invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word back to the New Testament. Uh, this time we'll be in the Gospel of Matthew. You can find our text on page 823 if you're using the Pew Bible uh, in the rack in front of you. Uh, our text is Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Uh, these verses are familiar to many of us. Uh, they're the types of verses uh, that you have probably heard talked about and referenced in a number of different occasions uh, or, or circumstances. Uh, they're helpful for us this morning to read and preach on them in the context of the entirety of Matthew's gospel. God's word is best understood in context. So to understand Matthew 18, we've got I don't know, a year's worth of context in Matthew, right? It's going to help us to understand uh, what these verses uh, mean. Uh, we'll be here this morning. Uh, next week, we'll continue on in the series in the parable of the unforgiving servant, a powerful parable about how God forgives his own and how we are called to forgive. I can think of uh, no other parable better suited uh, for Easter to remember the forgiveness that we have because our Savior has risen from the dead. So we will be on this theme of sin and forgiveness uh, for a couple weeks now. As we look at the text this morning, it's going to be a bit of a different type of sermon. It's going to be sort of what I might call a teaching sermon. Uh, you've heard Matthew 18 used so often. I want to go through it, but I also want us to make sure we understand how it should and should not be applied in our lives uh, and in the church. So we're going to work through uh, some of those categories. But let's begin uh, as we always do with the reading of God's word and pray that his spirit would give us understanding this morning. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me in prayer? Our Lord, it can be hard to live in a church when others sin against us. It can be hard to live in a world we find ourselves sinning against others and being hurt by the sins of others. You know what it is to be hurt by the sins of others. And I pray that we would learn from the words of your son this morning, that we would heed them, that we would apply them, that we would seek in a fallen world and a church full of redeemed sinners to be reconciled with one another, to be sharpened by one another, to dwell together in unity, to pursue the peace and the purity of the church. And I pray you would use these verses to lead us along just that path. But as we look at 
the details and the circumstances of all of this, would we never lose sight of Jesus, the one who has come to seek straying sheep like us and to bring us home? Would our eyes be set on him and him alone this morning? For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. The famous sculptor, Michelangelo, was once asked how he carved his famous statue, David. Some of you are aware of the statue, David. It's one of the most famous uh, pieces of art in all of the world. They're in Italy. Uh, it is a magnificently carved statue of the biblical figure. And so the question of Michelangelo, who carved it, is how could you do that? How could you produce uh, such an incredible work of art? How could you carve the David. And he answered, well, it's easy. You just chip away the stone that doesn't look like David. <laughs> it's just that easy, right? You just take away the stuff that doesn't look like the one that you're trying to make. I think that's an image of God's work in us of sanctification. Sanctification is the, the, the big theological word of God making us more and more like Jesus. As Christians, he calls us out of sin, and then our lives are dying more and more to sin and living more and more unto righteousness. And God is doing that work. Like a master sculptor, he is removing everything in us that doesn't look like Jesus so that we grow in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. It sounds almost like a, a noble thing, right? Yeah, I guess I'm like a statue, right? <laughs> God's carving and chiseling. And the way he does that is often how we least expect it. I think a better image for us might be we're rocks thrown into a rock tumbler with other rough rocks, right? You know, a rock tumbler, you throw, put a bunch of rocks in and it spins around and tumbles them for hours and days and weeks and, and months, maybe even years, so that the rough edges are all knocked off of all of the other rocks. God uses other rocks to knock off our hard edges to make us more and more like Jesus. In a sense, we can think of the church as a rock tumbler, right? <laughs> and we're thrown in with our rough edges and we rub up against one another and we afflict, afflict one another and we hurt one another. And in God's mercy and kindness, he uses conflict and even sin against each other to sanctify us, to make us more and more like Jesus. What I want to show you in these verses this morning is this confrontation and how it works. I hope to show you that gracious confrontation is God's means to shepherd his flock. It's God's means to to carve out his image in us. It is God's means to care for us. Yeah, we're all good with just God and me, but what about when God uses other people? That's the hard part, right? Well, that's the part that God uses in these verses. What we're going to do is we're going to walk through all the verses here. I'm going to show you the three steps that are here of resolving conflict, the three steps of gracious confrontation, and then we're going to zoom out. And we're going to see how Matthew 18 is quoted or used or even misused in the church and amongst Christians that we might see some broader principles from these verses. So we'll start with the, the three steps, just walking through uh, these verses as they come to us. What is the setting 
of gracious confrontation. Well, it's the beginning of verse 15. If your brother sins against you. All right, there's our setting. Somebody sinning against you. Now, do you remember our setting for last week? Last week, on the topic of humility, the setting was us sinning against other people. Right? In verses 5 to 14, we're the ones hurting other people and causing them to sin. And our aim is to restrict sin in our own lives by humbling ourselves, looking up to other people, that we would not cause them to stumble, we would not look down at them. Now we're reversing that. Now we're the one, we're the disciple who has been hurt, who has been maybe caused to sin, who has been scorned or looked down upon. It's the reverse of last week because chapter 18 is all about life in the community of the people of God. Sinning and being sinned against. Step one, if your brother sins against you, second part of verse 15, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So when someone in your Christian circle, in your family, particularly within your church, sins against you, you're to go to that person alone. Two commands here, go and tell. While you're to go to them. Sometimes we're experts when we're hurt at going to somebody else, right? We go and we tell somebody else about it. We go and talk to somebody else about what she did wrong or what he did wrong, right? That's often our first inclination is go anywhere else, maybe even the internet, right? (laughs) as opposed to going to the actual person. This step of going, it should prevent gossip. It should prevent slander. It should prevent destroying other people's reputations by going directly to the person who has sinned against you. What do you do when you go to them? Jesus says, tell him his fault. To tell someone their fault is... It's the same root word uh, for reproving someone or convicting someone or bringing their sin to them to clearly tell them their fault. You might want to go tell them off, right? (laughs) That's not what Jesus says. He says, go and tell them their fault. You see why this has to be gracious, right? (laughs) You see that all everything within us doesn't want to do these things. And we need the grace of the spirit to work within us to go And to graciously, to calmly, to patiently articulate how we have been hurt and offended by the other person. When we do that, there are two possible outcomes. The first possible outcome is that he listens to you and you gain your brother. That's the first possible outcome. Listening is here in context, it's not merely hearing sound waves coming into your ears, right? It's listening and heeding. It's, it's actually responding to what the person has to say. Positively here, it's implied. And you gain your brother. What language of gain? Most of the time that word is used in the New Testament is financial gain, right? You're, you're gaining money, right? You're gaining material. You're gaining possessions. Here, you're not gaining the person like a possession. You're gaining them back in restored relationship. Maybe even gaining them back to the Lord. That same language Paul uses famously in 1 Corinthians 9, where he says, I, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law, gain those outside the law. 
to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak, gain the weak. The Apostle Paul tells us he does all sorts of things. He changes things in his life. He lays down his rights in order that he might gain back someone to the Lord. That's the first outcome. That's the, the goal of gracious confrontation is you gain a sister. You gain a brother with whom there is broken relationship or estrangement. But there's another outcome. The second outcome is the beginning of verse 16, but if he does not listen. This isn't sort of the, you know, plug your ears, la, 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 la. It's not one of those like my kids do, right? Although maybe somebody does that if you confront them with their sin. Usually it means that they have heard your words, but they disagree with you. They, have, they, they disagree that they've sinned against you. They don't do any work towards reconciliation. And so the second step that Jesus gives his disciples is to take others with you. One or two, he says here. Take one or two others with you. The reason for this is in order to establish every charge. That line is open to interpretation. Because where the phrase establish every charge comes from, it comes from Deuteronomy 19. And it comes in the context of a legal charge in the nation state of Israel. And in that context, you're bringing witnesses who have witnessed the original offense. So that it's, it's like eyewitnesses to prove that your version of the events are true. But here, it seems instead Jesus is talking about witnesses to the confrontation itself. It's like you're doing the same thing as step one. You just bring two people with you so that they can witness what you're doing. They can witness how you are taking the appropriate steps of gracious confrontation. When you do that, there are two possible outcomes that Jesus gives us. Number one, he doesn't say this. I believe it is implied here. And that is that the brother listens and you gain your brother. Just like the first time around. You have taken some, you have tried now the second time to reconcile. You bring someone else with you and you gain your brother. Wonderful, right? The second possible outcome, at the beginning of verse 17, he refuses to listen to them. Not just you, but them. You notice how things are ramping up here. It's one person who doesn't listen. Now we have multiple people, and the offender refuses to listen. It's a little bit stronger, isn't it, than just not listening. What do we do if step two of taking one or two others results in the one who has sinned against us refusing to listen? This is where Jesus gives us the third step. The third step actually takes up verses 17 down to 20. I'll explain that in a second. But the rest of the passage, verses 17 and 20, all has to do with the third step, which is tell it to the church. Verse 17 If he refuses to listen to them, those are the witnesses you've brought with you, tell it to the church. It's that simple. Telling it to the church, again, just like steps one and two, has two possible outcomes. Again, the positive outcome is implied, that you gain your brother. That he didn't listen the first time, he refused to listen the second time, but after it's been told to the church, then he relents. Then she reconciles. That is a hopeful and possible outcome, right? The other outcome, back in verse 17, if he refuses, midway through the verse, and if he refuses to listen, 
even to the church. You see how things are getting ramped up now. It's not just refuses to listen. It's refuses to listen even to the church. It's like Jesus is sort of amazed at how hardened this person's heart has become. They won't listen to two people, but they won't even listen to the church that speaks to them. You see how we're ramping up here. You see how hearts are hardening. You see how the steps are becoming more and more public, more and more formal, more and more challenging to the offender. What happens then? What happens if he doesn't listen to you alone, if he doesn't listen to you and one or two other people, and if he doesn't listen even to the church? Jesus says, end of verse 17, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's not a good thing to be (laughs) in the economy of how Jesus is describing his new covenant kingdom. There are Gentiles who have come to faith who are part of the church. There are tax collectors who have come to faith who are part of the church. There's one who wrote this very thing down in Matthew. It's not that those things are wrong. It's that Jesus is describing those who are outside of faith, outside of the kingdom. Those who without faith and repentance are considered outside of the kingdom. And Jesus is telling his followers, do not associate with them as a believer. That's key. They don't ignore Gentiles and tax collectors. Jesus actually eats with them. But when he eats with them, he eats with them as unbelievers in need of grace. In need of repenting of their sin and coming to him in faith. And so if a member of the body of disciples claiming the name of Jesus has repeatedly and persistently hardened his heart and ignored the word of the church, he or she is to be treated as an unbeliever and everything that comes with that. He doesn't get into this here, but there is still a hopeful outcome that this step will eventually gain the brother back. We see this in other places in scripture where the brother or the sister is gained back into the family of God. Now, before we move on to the the remainder of the section, I just want you to note how much time might need to pass to go through all of these steps. You don't have a calculator out, but you could just imagine your sin against, you have a decision to make. We're going to go into that decision in a moment. Hopefully that decision will take you some time about what to do and how to handle it. If the brother doesn't listen to you, you have another decision to make. You've got to go get some other people. You have to decide who to go get. You have to schedule time for you all to meet together. Doesn't listen to you, you go tell it to the church. And that can mean a couple different things. It doesn't mean standing up right now and declaring it in front of all of us, right? Jesus gives us speed bumps, right? We need those. You hate speed bumps until it's your own neighborhood and you love them when you have kids, right? People aren't plowing down your streets. Jesus gives us these speed bumps so that we we practice patience with one another. When we think someone has sinned against us, Jesus is requiring us to be patient. Patience gives opportunity for sinners to be convicted of their sin and repent. Don't you wish you always repented the moment you were convicted? I know I wish I did, but I don't. By grace, we repent quicker and quicker. But God, knowing we might need more opportunity, more time. You know what these steps also allow for? They allow for the possibility that the one bringing the accusation is wrong. 
that the one bringing the accusation has misinterpreted the events. They've taken a couple things someone said or did, and they've created a narrative that is entirely false. And bringing other people into the equation might reveal through time and patience and gracious confrontation, it's actually the accuser that's wrong, not the one who has been accused. Now, we're still in the heading of tell it to the church. Verse 17 is obvious, telling it to the church. Where we get confused, we will get confused is beginning at verse 18. And I want to show you contextually, verses 18, 19, and 20 still speak about the process of telling it to the church. Eyes on these words here, they're key. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's the second time we've seen these words. We saw them first in chapter 16, where Jesus tells Peter, he's giving him the keys to the kingdom. that He might do this very thing, bind and loose. Those are unfamiliar words to us, open and close, right? Turn the key to lock something, turn the key to unlock something. So now the church is given authority to bind and loose. And that authority is recognized in heaven. It's not that God in heaven waits to see what we will do. No, he gives us clear instructions on what is sin, what is not sin, and how to treat sin, and how to judge sinful thoughts, words, and actions around us. And so as the church exercises this judgment according to God's revealed will, it's done in heaven. It's bound here. It's as if it is bound there as well. Verse 18 is clear. He says, I'm sorry, verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. You see this verse pulled out of context and applied to agreeing with somebody else on what you're praying for. Yeah, it's good for you and your friend to pray for the same thing. But that's not what this verse is about. Contextually, this verse is about judgment. It's about the church and the authority that is granted to the church by being entrusted with the keys of the kingdom to agree on something in judgment. And that what those who are called to act with the authority of a judge within the church, what they agree upon, will be done for them by their Father in heaven. Verse 20 is more of the same. For, where two or three are gathered, that word for, this is now going to be an established basis for what we have just read. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Okay, that means when you have Bible study with two of your friends, God is with you. Yes, he's everywhere, and he's with you. It means he's with us this morning in worship. Yes, of course, he's with us in gathered worship. That's not what this verse is talking about. Again, the context of the verse is talking about judging, acting in judgment. The language of gathering together, where two or three gather together, that's the language of the, those who are entrusted to judge cases in the Old Testament. They would gather together. They would hear the offenses. They would hear the accusations of the defense and they would gather as the judges to act in, agree in judgment. And Jesus says that as judge, he is with the judges when they gather together. That the Jesus we see as loving and kind and merciful is also the one who will not permit the continual hardening of heart and rejection of his word within the body of Christ. And that with those who bear the somber duty of having the keys of the kingdom, they have the assurance that even when they act in judgment, 
that Jesus is there among them. You see how differently these verses are interpreted when we read them in context versus when they're pulled out of context. What is success according to Jesus in these verses? There's one obvious success story, and that is gaining a brother or sister back, right? You see the patience, you see the steps, you see the hopes. You see how even as we see somebody going astray, we are called by Matthew 18 to continue with hopeful prayer and confrontation, with gracious confrontation, to maintain hope that God will soften their heart and bring them back. Even the final step of treating them as tax collectors and Gentiles is intended that they might come to an end of themselves and return. But it is also successful to use Matthew 18 to eventually conclude that someone claiming the name of Christ within the church is making a false profession. That is not an unsuccessful use of Matthew 18. Jesus, just as he is purifying and sanctifying each of us as individuals, he is purifying his church. And one of the reasons that Jesus gives in other scripture for how we are to obey these steps is for the purity of his church. He does not look kindly upon his, his name taken in vain. Of people using the name of Christian and living in rampant, unrepentant sin. And so there is success no matter where the path of Matthew 18 might take us. So that, that, there's the verses. There's what most commentators uh, will agree upon. But then what do we do with Matthew 18? I mean, have you heard people talk about Matthew 18 as if it's just sort of some special place of scripture, right? Or it's sort of Miranda rights, or it's this thing that you sort of guides everything and trumps every other verse of scripture out there. So how do we actually understand and apply Matthew 18 in our lives today? So let me give you three principles. Three principles, they're, they're, they're fairly simple in this text for how we understand uh, these verses. Now, first, I want to show you the love of Matthew 18. The love that is here. I'm, I'm using the phrase Matthew 18 to revert to these six verses, but they're in context of the whole chapter, which is full of the love of God for wandering sinners. So here's a question we should ask ourselves. Must we always go and tell a brother or sister Every single time they sin against us. Man, I don't want to go to this fellowship lunch if y'all are about to do all that, right? <laughs> That's going to be a long day in the fellowship hall. <laughs> we're in the rock tumbler. And we're bumping up against each other all the time. We're, we're, we're offended and we're taking offense all the time. So how do we know when it's appropriate to take even the first step of Matthew 18? And I want to use this, this idea of love, the love of God for sinners. And here, here's how I'm going to simply answer the question. When do we follow these steps when we cannot overlook the sin? When we cannot overlook the sin, then we need to follow these steps. God's word tells us there are a range of sins. Words we say, actions we commit, and things that we, thoughts that we think. Not all sin is equal. It is all equally wrong in the eyes of God such that one minor sin deserves judgment. But in this world, 
Not every way that we hurt one another is the same, right? Some things we should go to jail for, and some things we don't, right? The confession of faith speaks of the heinousness of sin. Some sins are more heinous. They're worse than others in this sort of horizontal against one another sense. And so if we, if we consider how others have sinned against us and we can answer, well, it's relatively minor. And in a sense, it's, it's merely personal. Then we could read Proverbs 19.11 that says, it is his glory to overlook an offense. It is the glory of a child of God to overlook an offense. That word overlook, it means to pass over, to get all nerdy on you for a second. It's a verb of motion. And so there's one object that's immovable and there's another object that moves past it. And so in this sense, the the sin is the object that's sitting there and the overlooking, the passing over is the verb. It's the action of moving past it. It's it's when you're on the highway and you see a wreck on the side of the road and you have to decide, am I going to stop and help them or not? Well, is it a fender bender? Well, you're probably just going to overlook it and keep going, right? Are there other cars stopped there to take care of it? Sure. You can overlook it and keep going. Did you just see it happen in front of your face and you need to pull over, call 911 and go help out? You got to stop, right? You, You are either going to keep moving or you're going to stop and deal with it. That's sort of the question of overlooking other sins. Can I just keep moving? Or do I need to stop? Because I can't keep moving. I cannot overlook it. What are types of sins that we don't overlook? Well, I just put these in the category of major sins, right? Big sins. Public sins. Sins that particularly and especially dishonor God. That bring disrepute on his name. Sins that damage relationships with other people. Right? Sins that hurt other people. Those are the types of sins we would put in the category that you may not or you might, should not overlook them. That's a question that love asks. Love asks the question of our brother and sister, can I overlook this? Should I overlook this? Or should I not overlook this? For the love of the church, for the love of God's name. Another question to ask in love is why am I confronting the sin of someone else? Why? The goal is to win them back. The goal of confrontation, gracious confrontation, is to win others back. What, do you remember the parable that happened just before these verses? It was the shepherd leading, leaving the 99 to go after the one wandering sheep. Immediately after that parable, he tells us how we live out that parable by graciously confronting other people by seeking other people out to bring them back. That is the goal of love, that we would rejoice when one another return. Jesus has said, blessed are the peacemakers. If you're a member of this church, you have taken a vow that you'll pursue the peace of this church. Sometimes that means overlooking, and sometimes that means you can't overlook. If you can't overlook, we are guided by Galatians 6.1 that says we are to restore with a spirit of gentleness. A church that literally follows Matthew 18 that is not full of love will be a disaster. <laughs> love is required by our Savior in obeying these verses. The second principle, as we understand and apply, Matthew 18 is the law. 
of Matthew 18, the law that we are taught in these verses. Matthew 18 and other verses like it establishes church law. It's not the basis for civil law. It's not the basis for how our policemen work, right? This is the basis for how law functions in the church. And the key question, or one of the key questions to understand these verses is to ask, who is the church to whom we are to tell the sin? And who is to respond and speak to the one who is being accused? Or to ask that in a different way, who binds and who looses? Or ask it a different way, to whom is given the keys of the kingdom? Now there are sort of two primary interpretations to this. One of those are are Christians that are convinced of a congregational form of government, believe that the authority is given to the entire congregation, to the whole church as it's gathered together. The other answer to that is how Presbyterians answer it. And Presbyterians say, well, the keys are given to the presbyters, to the elders. It's the understanding of that form of government is that God's church is represented by her elders. And as we continue to turn the pages of scripture and learn more and more about the church, we see that those who are given the duty to discipline in the New Testament are the elders and overseers of the church of Jesus Christ. And so we understand, in our church at least, in our denomination, that as we get to verse 17, tell it to the church uh, means to turn it over to those who are called with the somber responsibility within the church to judge. This is the scriptural basis for what we call church discipline. Not a fun topic we like to talk about, but church discipline is the exercise of authority to instruct and guide the members of a church. We believe it's so important, the reformers believed it's so important, it was a mark of the church, that if a so-called church does not properly exercise church discipline, they have lost the mark of the church because that's how Jesus shepherds his flock. So we understand that these verses inform us, as others do, as to the practice of church discipline in the church today. What does that look like among us? Well, it begins with preaching sermons like this. (laughs) Teaching sermons that tell you what we understand the Bible to be teaching. That tell us what sin is. Sin is breaking God's law. Sin is rebellion against God. And that God judges sin. But this God forgives us in Jesus. So we are called to forgive one another in Christ. Church discipline in the church cannot be practiced without patient and consistent instruction, without learning what it is that the church believes and is committed to. The steps in Matthew 18 are followed as individuals confront other individuals for how they've been hurt. This is how we avoid prejudging others. We go and talk to them about it. It's how we extend the benefit of the doubt by going and talking to other people. We have the option to overlook. We don't overlook and we go and talk. We talk with graciousness. We talk with aiming to understand. We talk aiming to be corrected. Here, in individuals talking to one another, is where I believe is the best chance at reconciliation. Once it gets out there, it becomes a whole lot harder to reconcile, doesn't it? It is my prayer that this week, a lot of reconciliation happens in this church that I had known nothing about, that I will never know anything about. I know enough stuff that comes up, that rises up, right? But shouldn't there be within Christians in the rock tumbler confessing and asking for forgiveness 
and repenting before one another. The step of calling witnesses, that's a serious escalation, isn't it? We should do all that we can to exhaust option one, which is just talk to them one-on-one. Because, man, once you bring somebody else to sit at the table, it gets real serious real fast. And it's hard to walk that one back. The, call, the decision of who to call to a meeting like this, that takes wisdom and patience. That we would aim to call someone who's objective, someone who's, uh, who can speak on behalf of both sides. But it is a serious escalation to call other witnesses. But as Matthew, as Jesus tells us in Matthew, as we follow those steps of biblical instruction, of individual confrontation, of calling other witnesses, sometimes it rises all the way to calling on the church to act as judges. This is where we call the elders of the church to gather together. Individual elders do not render judgment on other people's sin. It's the gathering of the elders and the promise that Jesus gives us that where the judges gather, he is with us. And that the elders gather This is not our favorite way of gathering. Just want you to know that. (laughs) To try cases, to hear innocence and guilt, and at times to render judgment. To apply the censures that are given to the elders of the church. Not to put someone in jail. Not to fine them. What do we do is we admonish them. We tell them they've done something wrong. We might have to suspend someone from the Lord's table. We might even have to take the final step to remove them from the church and treat them as a Gentile or tax collector always hoping and praying that God would use these steps to bring about the goal of reconciliation. Matthew 18 and other verses like it teach us of the law that we follow in the church. Our final principle, the third principle here that I need to address before we're done are the limits of Matthew 18. The limits of Matthew 18. Once you imagine a situation here with me for a second. I'm working in my office on a wonderful Tuesday morning. I've got my new associate pastor next door. I'm so thrilled to have Jim with me. But then he comes in and he asks for some money, and I don't give him any money. And so he comes around and he starts to beat me up and steal my money, right? (laughs) We need security cameras in my office just in case. He beats me up. He takes all my wallet. He goes out in the hall. He starts racking up charges on my credit card. I'm there in a pull-up on the ground. I call my elders. My elder says, have you tried Matthew 18 yet? (laughs) It doesn't work, right? It doesn't work there. There are limits to how we understand that Matthew 18 works. Here's the question. When should we recognize the limits of Matthew 18? And that is when the nature of the sin demands that we bring more principles to bear. We never ignore these verses, but we should bring other principles to bear when the sin is of such a nature that we need to act in greater wisdom and obedience to God's word. Let me give you a couple examples of that. If an accuser is in danger, we do not tell them to go alone to the one who has endangered them. The most obvious example of this are when children are victims of abuse. We do not send them alone back to their abuser to confront them and follow Matthew 18. No Christian in their right mind thinks Matthew 18 says that. So there's cases in which we would need to be wise about recommending that an accuser confront the one who has hurt them. 
We need to recognize there's times when the accuser is in a distinct disadvantage. If they are drastically younger, like a child to an adult. If they're in a position which the person who is sinned against them is in a place of authority. In the context of the church, if they have been hurt by pastors or elders, it can at time endanger them, being below them on the totem pole, as it were, in the ranking of authority, to go before them. There's a time of imbalance that wisdom recognizes. We also understand the limits of Matthew 18 apply when the accused person's sin is so bad, it is so heinous, it is so public, it so affects and hurts others, it maybe even is a crime that it would be negligent for us to insist on literally following every one of these steps. It's not that we ignore Matthew 18, but we recognize that there's other parts of God's word that speak to it. There's other wisdom, there's other principles that instruct us how to act. You may even have heard of situations where someone who has been accused claims that those who accuse them haven't followed Matthew 18, therefore they don't have to answer to it. Go back and try those steps first before I will answer to anything that I've been accused of. Well, what's another biblical principle that speaks to that? It's Matthew 5. If you know that someone has something against you, what do you do? You wait until they come to you, according to Matthew 18? No, you go to them. The ideal church are Christians following Matthew 18 going and following Matthew 5 going the other way. We're meeting one another on the road to be reconciled together. But when the church is called to gather in judgment, if Matthew 18 has not been literally followed, it does not mean the church cannot act to judge. Some sins are of such a nature that even if Matthew 18 were to be followed, the answer is more than just personal reconciliation. In a fallen world where the church is called to exercise justice, there are times when the answer is beyond personal reconciliation. Matthew 18 is a wonderful guide for us, but it is not our only guide. It is not the only basis for the law in the church. And we must recognize, while we generally apply the principles of Matthew 18, that wisdom and other scripture demand that we recognize its limits. These verses teach us of love. They teach us that we act in love towards one another, overlooking sin, confronting sin in loving ways. They teach us of the church law and how we need to trust the church, how we as individuals don't have the authority to treat someone like a tax collector or a Gentile. That's entrusted to the church. That gives us patience and dependence on God to work and to act. And we recognize in faith the limits of a narrow interpretation of Matthew 18. What's going on in all of this? In all of this, what we see is the church, like that rock tumbler, (laughs) that baptized people are brought into the family of God. And yet, we, like the sheep, in the parable beforehand, are prone to wander. Right? We are prone to go away. We are prone to go astray. And God, in his mercy and kindness, seeks us out to bring us home. And often how he does that is by other humble Christians confronting us. If you are confronted in a gracious way by a humbled Christian, praise God for it. 
They might not be 100% right, but that is the way that God works. That's the, the crook he uses to bring his wandering children home. When you're confronted by your own sin, no matter how harsh that confrontation might be, it is the mercy of God bringing you back. God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, and he is chipping away, and he's got a long way to go with me, with you, with our church. May God use gracious confrontation to seek and restore wandering sheep like us. Let's pray. Our Lord, we often don't know how in need of these verses we actually are. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would take uh, my words, that you would take these applications, and that you would use them richly and wisely in our hearts. Lord, while there are some things very clear here, there are many things that are left up to our discretion, that are the path of biblical wisdom. And we don't always know the answers to these. Lord, I pray that you would restore the brokenhearted. I pray for the relationships that even now are broken, that you would restore them. I pray for some who may even have taken that first step and it hasn't gone well. We pray, oh God, that you would regain brothers and sisters to us. We pray that you would lead us to lovingly take those steps of gracious confrontation as you have lovingly taken those steps towards us. Lord, renew and restore us as your church. Bring every wandering sheep back home, safe in your fold. For our good and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.